Welcome to the Clifford Chance podcast, where our experts discuss pressing issues and trends faced by the business world today. Today we'll be talking about Labour's plan to introduce inclusive ownership funds. I'm joined by Dan Needle, who's been looking into the implications of a possible Jeremy Corbyn-led Labour government. I'm Philip Souter and I am our head of UK public policy. I've been working very closely with Dan on this issue. Labour's proposal is part of a wider set of policies which they would seek to implement if they won a general election, including comprehensive nationalisation programme and employee representation on companies' boards, to name only two of the main proposals. There is clearly a real possibility of a Labour government, given the political instability in the UK, so it's important that we understand the implications and the mechanics of Labour's key policies, which is why we're here today. So, Dan, what exactly is the proposal on inclusive ownership funds? So this is a proposal which is, when one first hears it, surprising, even astonishing in its ambition. What it is, is that every large company in the UK, large meaning 250 employees or more, would have to give 10% of its shares to a quote-unquote inclusive ownership fund. And that fund would be managed by representatives of the employees. And that means, of course, that 10% of the profits in the business will be paid to this fund. They will then be distributed to the employees, but capped at £500 per employee, with the balance going to government. So, just to step back a second, what this means is 10% of all large businesses, no longer owned by the private sector in a true sense, but owned by some combination of workers and government. So how much money are we talking about here and how much is the government going to make from it? Labour's figures suggest there would be about £6 billion a year in dividends paid to these funds, of which £4 billion will go to employees and £2 billion to the government. A few journalists started crunching numbers on this and became quite sceptical because in a large number of sectors the profits per employee are sufficiently high, you will hit that £500 figure quite quickly, and a very large balance goes to the government. For most FTSE companies outside of sectors with low profit margins, like, say, retail, that, 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 that seems to be an accurate statement. So it is possible you would end up with a significantly greater fraction going to government than £2 billion. Some people might hear that, and they might ask themselves the question, isn't that just a tax? It's not a tax in legal form, but in effect, absolutely it's a tax. It's a funny form of corporate tax on dividends. Taking a step back, has this sort of thing been done before? Are there any precedents for this? Well, here Labour are being a bit cute because they say, ah, there's nothing unusual about employee representation on boards. And that's true. We see it Germany, France, pretty much all over the continent. But the idea of a mandatory employee stake in companies, and not a new one gradually created, but something taken from existing shareholders, is really very new and radical. In fact, we can't see a single precedent for it. The inspiration for this seems to come from a proposal that was devised in the 70s by a Swedish economist called Meidner. It's called the Meidner Plan. And the Meidner Plan envisaged exactly this, that a greater and greater proportion over time of shares in the private sector will be transferred into worker-controlled funds 
and Meaden proposed it with not 10% as the endpoint, but ultimately with majority control, uh, perhaps even overwhelming control at the end of the private sector in the hands of workers' councils of some kind or other. So, so that is the precedent. Of course, it didn't happen in Sweden. It became highly controversial, and the socialist Swedish governments of the 80s implemented something not completely dissimilar to it, but in a much more watered-down form, and even that ended up being scrapped in the late 80s. So no, it's a long way of saying there is no precedent for this. It is really very new and very different from anything else out there. So it's a 10% stake. How is that created? They're not explicit about this. They say that it's built up over time, so 1% a year for 10 years. It seems likely, just thinking about the practicality, that it wouldn't be taken from existing shareholders in a literal sense. It would probably be new shares issued to the fund. But of course, economically, what you're doing is diluting existing shareholders, and in the long term, you're removing 10% of value from the shareholders. So what would the governance implications be of a 10% holding like this for the companies concerned? For a listed company, 10% will sometimes make a difference if you have contested votes on a merger, contested votes on director remuneration, 10% could be important. On the other hand, if you have a privately owned company that's wholly owned at the moment by a single business or a single individual, 10% stake is going to make very little difference at all. It will complicate transactions in the shares and will complicate things like shareholder meetings because you'll suddenly have a real independent party with all the legal formality that goes with that, but ultimately you're not going to make much difference. If you have a joint venture, life gets very interesting. Imagine a case, Philip, you, you and I make an investment into the UK, we're 50-50, maybe you have a particular kind of know-how, I have a particular kind of know-how, but we want to deadlock the company. This is quite a, quite a common scenario. So, so we're very careful to arrange everything so that neither of us can make the company do anything that the other doesn't like. Fine. But then suddenly we dilute both of our shares, we're now at 45% each, and the inclusive ownership fund has 10%. But that means that you could get together with the fund and make the company do something that I don't want. You're fundamentally changing the dynamics of a joint venture. In a sense, you're making a pure 50-50 joint venture impossible. That's quite important and quite fundamental. And what knock-on effects that would have, I guess you'd need to speak to an economist, but it seems to me potentially very significant. Who would benefit from the capital gains in the fund's shares? It's a good question. So the fund is sitting on ultimately 10% of the shares in a company. It's receiving 10% of the dividends. But for most shareholders, most of your value isn't coming from dividends. It's coming from capital gains, growth over time. And it seems the answer to that is, well, they don't really directly benefit because the shares stay in the fund. They're never sold. All that happens is presumably the value of the dividends swells over time. And what do you think the practical impact will be on investors and and the businesses affected? So for investors, clearly the effect is that their shares are worth 10% less than they were. Now, naively, there will be a point where this looks likely to happen. And at that point, one would think the value of shares in large British businesses would fall by 10%, maybe a bit more to reflect the 
it's uncertainty as to whether you stop at 10% or keep going higher and higher, maybe a bit less to reflect the uncertainty of whether it actually happens. But you would think there would be a moment when there is a market correction based on this proposal. That's for investors, and of course we're talking about foreign investors, UK pension funds, individual investors, everyone. For the companies themselves on the other side of that, the implications for them is an increase in the cost of capital, naively by, by, by about 10%, given that if they issue fresh shares, then presumably they have to tuck 10% of those shares aside and, get, and give them to the fund. So yes, clear implications for investors, clear implications for companies. The risk of all of this is that the ultimate benefit, the £500 per employee, is it's a significant amount of money for many people, but it's not huge. On the other hand, the cost that you're creating for business, the complication of tracking this very unusual class of shares, the increase in your cost of capital, well, that could actually be greater and more significant than the benefit. This isn't necessarily a zero-sum game, Philip, where, where you're redistributing from capital to workers. Actually, what you can end up doing, and it's a very plausible outcome of this, is you are destroying value in the business so that you're ultimately ending up with less than you started with. How would this apply to non-UK companies with operations in the UK? That's a really good question. The short answer is, we don't know. The most plausible answer seems to be that if you have a foreign company with UK subsidiaries, then, of course, the government here can't do anything about the shares in France or America. But what they can do is require that the holding of the UK business becomes 90% by the foreign parent and 10% by the inclusive ownership fund. So that seems the likely outcome. And, OK, that sounds workable. But what about the other way round? What if you have a UK headquartered business with operations all across the world, but then ultimately its parent is a UK company? On the face of it, this proposal means that the UK employees, the UK employees and the UK government, get a 10% share of the global profits. The French employee or the French government might, might regard that as a rather unfair outcome. So we wonder if that will need some additional thought. Could you make a special magic class of shares that only pays out the profits of the UK business? Maybe. Then it gets quite complicated, and you wonder if perhaps there is a better, neater way to do this. Do you think people are going to fight this? And if they, if they are going to, how could they do that? It's probably inevitable that this is going to be challenged, and there will be different ways that different people could challenge it. One venue would be the courts. Pretty litigious society these days. Judicial review is more common than it than it was during the Labour governments of the sixties and seventies when they were nationalising things. So we can certainly expect legal challenges. Assuming it was implemented in a competent and prudent way, those challenges would not have much chance of succeeding, given that Parliament is sovereign. More interesting avenues for others. If you have investors who benefit from bilateral investment treaties, from free trade agreements with investor protection provisions, from other international treaties, then those investors may be able to claim this is an indirect expropriation because 10% of their value is being taken by government action. And they may be able to pursue claims in international tribunals. That's certainly one thing that could happen. Another thing that might happen is other countries raising disputes in the WTO on the basis that this is essentially a protectionist measure. 
and aside from the pure legal avenues, there could be diplomatic consequences. Some of these companies will be companies actually owned by either foreign states themselves, owned by sovereign wealth funds, owned by nationalised businesses in other states. So th there will be a, a variety of ways in which this will be challenged, political and legal, given the sums involved, given the consequence of this measure, uh, I expect it would all get quite messy. Looking at what the Labour Party is trying to achieve with this proposal, so on the one hand you seem to have a benefit to the individuals, to the, to the employees, to the workers, as it were, and on the other hand it is an opportunity to raise additional revenue for public spending. And there are also potentially other sort of uh, other sort of um, social uh, political sort of drivers to it. I mean, could could there be an, a different way of achieving these objectives, a, a, a less potentially damaging way and a simpler way of achieving these objectives? Sure. If you care about the outcome rather than the means, this is doing three things. It's, as you say, distributing money to employees, a form of statutory bonus, if you like. It's providing a kind of employee representation. And it's additional money for government. Well, you can do all those three, three things in a much easier way. You could have a guaranteed minimum bonus, like the minimum wage, linked to the profitability of a business. You could give employees rights of representation at shareholder meetings, broadly equivalent to a 10% stake. And you could increase corporate taxes, and that would achieve the same as this measure. What it wouldn't do is actually give workers 10% of the shares. And maybe that doesn't matter. But maybe if your end objective is like Meadner's and the Swedish socialists of the 70s, if your end objective is actually worker control of the private sector, then my compromise solution doesn't work because you, you, you don't want little bits of policy here, little bits of policy there. You actually want worker control of the private sector and you can achieve that with this proposal and then ramping up the shareholding over time. So the fear of many would be that if this proposal is, is taken forward, that's not being done to achieve these narrow, not very ambitious short-term objectives. It's being done for something much more ambitious, much more radical and much longer term. Well, thank you, Dan. Um, if you want to read more about any of these issues uh, that we have discussed today, then you can take a look at our website. And uh, we've included some links uh, in the short text accompanying this podcast. We've also written a briefing on this, which contains um, an analysis of some of the issues we've been discussing. You have been listening to the Clifford Chance podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast by visiting cliffordchance.com and follow us on LinkedIn. Thank you very much. Thank you.